Okay, so we are on our fourth um, session of our Nine Marks of a Healthy Church and Nine Marks of a Healthy Church member. And uh, today we are talking about the idea of biblical conversion and and being a converted believer and the importance of those two things um, to the health of the church. So um, so let's talk about um, just from the get-go, uh, sort of the importance of biblical conversion to um, church membership, okay? And so what I mean by by conversion um, is is the process at which we become followers of Christ by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ by faith. All right. Now we could, we could get, we're not doing this in this context, but it would be something um, beneficial probably to go through if you've never done it before is to go through sort of a, the order of salvation um, that, and, and an understanding of that process because churches actually disagree on that in different ways, but we would, we would understand it going through this sort of process of, you know, God's, um, election in eternity past. It, it leads to, um, God's call in terms of your life, the word of God going out and calling you to, to faith that the spirit would be working in your life and would come. And we believe, um, that, that, a person is regenerated before they believe and repent, which is not the way everybody thinks. Um, some people think that believing and repenting is the cause of regeneration. We think it's the other way around, that God comes and changes our hearts, that we have a dead heart that he that he takes, and he takes the heart of stone and gives it a heart of flesh. He takes the dead heart and replaces it with a living heart. With that new living heart, we are able to respond to the gospel call rightly because we would say beforehand we could not respond to it rightly because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And so then now we have the ability um, to believe and repent, to actually turn from our sin and actually trust in Christ because we have a new living heart. And so we believe and repent and then out of that believing and repentance, now we are converted, right? We are um, brought into the kingdom. And and so the idea would be in all of this, now again, that's a whole other conversation, ties into things that we would talk about with um, uh, soteriology. Um, we've talked about the points of Calvinism and stuff like that. The doctrines of grace is, is uh, we've talked about some of those in the membership classes and things like that. And it's, and it's beyond the scope of this passage here, um, or this, this class here. But if, if, if we're talking about biblical conversion, the fact that people are actually converted and actually now truly saved followers of Jesus Christ, that's significant for at least a couple of reasons. Um, for one, it is the fact that it's necessary because if the mission of the church is to make disciples, then it's essential that we know how people are actually converted and become followers of Christ. Okay, so if we think there is a way for people to be converted and become Christians that looks different from the biblical picture of conversion, that's going to be a problem. That has been the case throughout the history of the church in different ways. So, for example, um, the big one of the big issues during the Great Awakening um, was that Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards and those guys were basically saying, hey, 
you have to have a, a born again experience and come to the Lord. Um, you, you can't just sort of be a nice guy who's been in the church his entire life and in general m- mentally assented to the things that are a Christian, right? That can't be the, the, what makes you a Christian. There has to be a point at which you turn from your sin and self and turn to Jesus Christ and are born again. And not everybody agreed with that, right? There were much of the established church. Um, so for example, in England, the Anglican church basically said, no, you know, that's not how people get saved. People get saved by believing that the things that the Bible claims are true, giving mental assent to those things. People are born into the church. They're baptized into the church. They live their entire lives in the church. They agree with the church. Like they don't believe something else, right? And so that means they're Christians. And the, the great awakening pastors were like, no, it doesn't. It just means that you're a dude who has mentally assented to these things, which is not the same thing as being converted. Yes. Yeah, well, the part of the problem is, is that it's always hard to identify who has been regenerate or not, right? Um, now, some of that would happen in the in a church functioning properly in terms of church discipline, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe if you had a person who said, "Yes, I believe in all these things. I affirm the truths of Christianity," but showed no semblance of regeneration and new life in their, in the way they live their lives, then there might be a church discipline issue that comes in. And so then from the standpoint of the church in terms of discipline, they would say, yeah, we're, we don't think you're a believer. The problem was always, and it, and it, it, it's less of a problem in Baptist circles in a sense, um, because we believe in regenerate church membership. So nobody is a member of the church until they at least profess to be a follower of Jesus and enter into the church, as opposed to many churches in the world that know you're baptized when you're a baby and you are a member of the church in some ways, right? Um, I, I think I would be rightly saying like in the Catholic church, you're not just in some ways you are right. You are a, you're a member of the church. Um, and so it's a little bit different in Baptist circles than it is in probably other Protestant circles and certainly in terms of Orthodox and Roman Catholic and things like that. But you don't find probably a whole lot of times where people are um, just kicking people out. But honestly, nine marks has a, had a process by which when he got there, he did reverse membership interviews where instead of doing, interviews just with new incoming members. He did interviews with old members and he did that for the purpose of saying the answers you're giving me would tend to make me believe that you were not actually a Christian. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now, again, if somebody gives all the right answers, it's harder uh, to, to uh, do that. But if you talk to somebody and you say, Hey, are you a believer? Yes, I am. Well, well, why are you a believer? Oh, well, because I try really hard to take care of my family. Yeah, that's not it, right? And so then that's not the right answer. So uh, so you would, I think that was the process that he kind of went through and would see some of those things. But but no, you don't see a lot of churches that, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, to, to, how you parse some of these things out. Um, 
But obviously, if we're going to try to make, if if we want people to be converted to the faith, we don't want to do that in counterfeit ways. We don't want to just say, oh, well, we sure have made a lot of church attenders, right? So that's good enough. That's what it means to be a Christian because they come to church regularly. No, that's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be converted. And so it's important for the mission of the church. Obviously, also, we want to be sure, at least as much as possible, um, that the church is made up of people who are actually converted. Why? Because the power to live as Christ has called us to, and to be about the things that Christ has called us to, are only accessible to those who are actually followers of Jesus and have a spirit indwelling inside them. If you don't have that, then then as we call people to holiness, as we call people to sacrifice and service, at the end of the day, they're not going to be capable of those things um, to the level that we would ask of them because they don't have the spirit in them. They're not actually followers of Jesus. And so it shouldn't surprise us if they're not living as if they're converted because they're not. And so we want to as much as possible. And, and the truth is, is there's no way to ever know for sure. Right. Um, but there can be evidences of those things. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second too. So, um, so the question is, is about change, right? We live in a culture that basically says, you know, there doesn't need to be any change in your life. Um, you can believe things and, um, and, and there doesn't have to be any measurable change. You can, or many people would probably say in a secular world, you don't need to change anything about you in the first place. Um, coming to Jesus, uh, Jesus is here to affirm everything about you and to make you feel good and so that you'll know that you're loved and, and, and you don't have anything to worry about or whatever. And again, the, the picture of the Bible would say, no, um, conversion is about a change that takes place. Um, conversion, I mean, you just think about the word, the reason why we use it to convert from one thing to another is, um, is necessary. Um, Yeah, so we're going to talk about that in just a second. Yeah, we're going to talk about um, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and and because that's a central text for understanding, honestly, both regeneration and conversion, uh, which are different things, at least as far as we understand them. But so then the question would be: not only is change necessary, certainly it is, but is change possible? And the answer is yes, but not merely through religious observation, uh, observation, not through mental acceptance, not just through moral resolve, not just by bootstrap effort where we pick ourselves up and we're, you know, we can hunker down and, and accomplish the things that God has called us to. None of those things are the way we are converted. Um, but by a change in our hearts that is accomplished by the grace of God through the work of the spirit, that change leading us to believe and repent and be converted. Okay? So, what must I do? What must I do to be converted? Right? Well, we, so the offer that we extend to people in the mission of God is the same thing that we hope we have understood and believed ourselves. What do I do? I repent. We tell other people to repent. Right? This is key. Um, it's key in our evangelism. When we go out and talk to people, when we're having a conversation with somebody, well, I want you to follow Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know, all it means is, uh, you know, he has a wonderful plan for your life and you should just come to church with me. You know, oh, cool. They're a Christian now. No, that's, that's not the, that's not what we are 
offering. Um, what must they do to be converted? One, they need to, they have to repent. And so we've talked about that before, but there's, there's sort of multiple imagery there. It is about the word itself kind of carries the idea of a change of mind or a change of heart. And so it is to agree with God about your sin, but then it also bears in it just the word itself about this picture of turning. So you're turning away from that old life, turning to, um, Jesus. Um, but both of those pictures are in there, but it's about basically you recognizing your sin and that you're a sinner, that you stand in condemnation before God, um, that that is the just and right and all those things. That's what it means to repent. And then to say, Lord, I agree. You're right. You're right on all these things. I'm sorry. And I, I don't want to go that way anymore. I want to go a different way. And then to believe to trust on Jesus Christ, trust on his merit in your place, trust on Jesus' mercy poured out towards us at the cross, and to trust on Christ alone for our salvation. That's what it means to be converted, okay? And so as our hearts are changed and stirred and made alive to actually be able to do these things, then we turn from sin and turn to Christ and and we are converted. So our statement of faith kind of adds a bunch of these elements together, right? It says, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties. So, right, sacred duties. They're things that we are responsible to do, okay? But also, they are inseparable graces, okay? What's the difference between a duty and a grace? Yeah, that's it, right? Duty is what I do, okay? But grace is something that is that is done for me, that is given to me, that is a gift. Faith and repentance are both of those things. They are both something that we are given, that is granted to us by God, but they're also things that we are responsible for, okay? Um, they are wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God. That's So that's what we're saying, that point a minute ago, saying we are capable of repenting and believing, not because there's this bright light of goodness that's deep down inside of us that has never been touched by the fall or sin or anything like that. And it, if we just find that bright little light, there's still something left for us to make a, a wise, good, and moral decision out of. No, we're dead in our sins and trespasses, but by the grace of God, we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Our dead hearts are made alive and are now able to believe and repent. And so the regenerating spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, that's repentance, and the way of salvation by Christ, that's faith, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, sorrow for our sin, confession, both in the sense of confessing sin and in the sense of uh, ascribing rightness to, to the things that he has said, and supplication for mercy, saying, man, I'm, I'm laying my life completely in your hands, God. I'm not coming based on anything that I have or want or could offer. I'm trusting on your mercy alone. And at the same time, hardly receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on him alone is the only all and sufficient Savior, right? Um, and that's the picture of what faith and repentance are. Those are the the, the path to conversion, okay? Um to say it crassly, that's what we're selling people. Okay. Um, this is, this is the sales pitch. If there's anything else that you are presenting to someone to say, you should get right with God. And then you say anything other than these, this 
general thing, then then what you're selling is not uh, the Christian gospel. Okay. Jeffrey. Does repentance come before faith? Is that so? So they're they're probably in a sense, but they're almost. I would say they're almost. Um, yeah, at the same time, right? They are. Um, you know, so there's somebody has used the illustration of you can't turn to something without turning from something else, right? If I'm turning from sin and to Christ, if turning from sin is repentance, turning to Christ is faith. It's the same action, right, um, essentially. Now, in someone's heart and head, there may be a process where they go, I'm a sinner. I don't know what to do about it. I'm in a lot of trouble. What do I do? Because God's right and I'm wrong. And then they realize that Jesus has died to save them. And then they go, oh, I'll trust in that. You know, So there could be some gap there. And probably some people, and I think probably in our churches very often, the, it works the other way around because we are very good about offering Jesus to people and not calling people to account for their sins. And so I think there's lots of places where Jesus is presented clearly as a savior and people are like, yeah, I want a savior, but they really don't have a clear sense of their own guilt or why they need a savior in the first place to which they come to hopefully immediately later, very soon later, but sometimes maybe even a little bit further down the road. And then, you know, then we start asking those questions, were we really saved then? I think I've shared that was my experience in many ways. There's some ways in which I feel like my freshman in high school to sophomore in college, I'm not sure which one of those were my conversion point. Because the second one, the one in college, had a, a very strong conviction of sin. But that was also because I was doing a lot more sins. Uh, and so, um, and so there was, uh, I'm not sure if it was essentially I was backsliding and feeling convicted of that. And that was the strength of it. Or what was going on is that I had never really come to grips as a, with my sin in general. And I'd, I'd understood that Christ was a savior and that he died for my sins in a very generic sense. Cause everybody knows they're a sinner, right? You know, but it was not until then that I really went, no, 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 no. I am a sinner that needs a savior. So I'm not sure, but again, that in the way it plays. Was your original baptism? So I was actually never baptized the first time around. So that, that helped me in terms of that problem. I was not, I didn't get baptized till after I was out of college, but, um, yes, yes. So if you were baptized early on and then you came to a greater understanding of it later, should you get baptized, um, then because you got them out of order. And so I think those are, uh, issues to work through with you and God, uh, uh, I would say in general, if you were convinced that you were not saved when you made the decision the first time or whatever, and you are convinced that you are now, then I would get baptized again or not again for the first time. The first time you're just getting wet. Um, but not everybody comes to you and that comes to it like that, right? So some people would say, no, I think I did know. I think I understood. And these other movements in my life have just been me finally coming to greater understanding or coming to grips with certain aspects. And so I'll leave that. I'm happy to talk through those things with anybody, but, um, but I also don't feel like I have to force people to make a certain decision when it comes to those things. Um, I can leave it up to your conscience because there's always the problem of people who end up getting baptized about every two years when they've, you know, 
discovered something new in the scriptures and they're like, I never knew it before now. And now I know, and I'm going to get baptized again. And that happens. And I don't think that's ideal either. So I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't think it's that, but I think God gets it. Okay. Like I think he understands our muddling through this thing is, is my, I think he's merciful in those ways. And so I think he appreciates our heart probably where he's going. Yeah. They want to get this thing right and do it in the right order or whatever. But he might also be thinking to himself, but you were fine. You're, I'm just working in you. That's what's going to happen the rest of your life. I'm going to continue to work in you and you're going to come to new realizations of things. Um, and so that's okay. Yeah, I've heard it described as kind of like a spiral where you're just going through life and you come to some realization maybe at a younger age, but then as you get older, more understanding comes upon you. And so then you have more recognition of things that you may not have had before, but that's not to negate the fact that you had a form of belief and yeah. understanding earlier. It was real. It yeah. Mm-hmm. Growing and yeah. changing in the knowledge of yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to tell somebody whether or not what was real in their life when they were four and I didn't know you and whatever else right. is as real or actually compared to the thing that happened when you were 14 and 24 and 44 and 64 and whatever. And so mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's something that I leave to people's conscience. Um, if you've never been baptized, I say, yeah, you need to get baptized. But if you have been baptized and I say, well, I'm going to leave it to your conscience to decide whether or not you feel like that was the, uh, that was, uh, Right. And again, happy to walk through those. I think it's even harder. It's even harder with people who have been in church their entire lives and been generally faithful and believing or whatever, because then they sort of go, I don't even know when I started believing sometimes. Like I just always remember believing in Jesus and I've had, when did it start? And there's lots of people that have basically that testimony. So, um, so, that, so that's sort of that, the idea of saying, what must you do, right? What must I do? But also, what must God do? Because the picture is, is as we've already been talking about. Um, Ezekiel gives this picture. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of, uh, and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God, right? And so this is God talking about what he is going to do in the future, this new covenant that is coming. And in this new covenant, he's going to make dead people alive again. Uh, he's going to give dead hearts, make them new so that they can actually follow him and believe in him and keep his commandments and, and things like that. It's also talked about in Jeremiah. Yep. Do you think the word flesh in the Old Testament that word flesh, and is it Greek or Hebrew? That would have been in Hebrew. Is that the same Hebrew word as flesh in the New Testament where it says, like, you know, don't be of the flesh? Yeah, yeah. I think, so Paul uses the word flesh in, in very particular ways in the New Testament. Um, it would depend on the context. You have to go back and look at each situation as to whether he's using the word flesh literally or symbolically of, you know, um, and so, um, like in this context, right? So he's saying, obviously we don't actually have a heart of stone and the heart that he is putting back in us is not actually a heart of flesh in the sense of he's not replacing an organ, right? But the picture is to say, this is something that is cold, hard, lifeless, and dead, 
right? And I'm going to put something within you that is living and active and, you know, that's the picture. And so. It's like a New Testament, like, you know, a heart of flesh would be the picture of living like a flesh. Right, yes, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, probably that might not be the case everywhere because Paul uses the word flesh in different ways in different places. Often it has that sense of carnal sinfulness, but not always. So, um, John six eleven. no one comes to the father, comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Okay. So what does God have to do? Um, it is God who is drawing, um, people to himself, even in, even faith and repentance are, as we said a minute ago, they are sacred duties and ins, uh, inseparable graces, right? Um, they are things that are given to us. We are granted repentance. We are granted faith. And yet at the same time, as we use the illustration, sometimes of those two railroad tracks that run parallel for eternity, they're both real. They're both true. They're both, you got a wheel on each one, but they, they are, but they never cross. Um, Faith and, and repentance are things that we are responsible for, that we are supposed to, we are called to do, and they are also things that are granted to us ultimately by God. Um, John 3, this is the Nicodemus passage. So Nicodemus is saying, you know, what, what do I need to do to be saved, essentially, and, and how does all this stuff work? And Jesus says, truly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So we've used the illustration before of saying, you know, you have two kids who are from the same family and have the same upbringing and sit in the same church and listen to the same sermons. And they both go to youth camp one time. And guess what? One of them is radically changed by the gospel and the other one continues to live in just you know, normal, whatever. And the answer is why? How come one of these kids got saved and one of them didn't? And the answer is because the spirit was moving in one of them's lives at that time and not in the other one. And that's all you can say. Um, now, again, it's always more complicated than that because you might start looking at their lives and seeing things and noticing that one of them is very studious and faithful and, and investigating and seeking. And the other one is carefree and ignores all of it or whatever. But the truth is, is that's not a determinative either because God can wake up one person in, in weird ways. He can take a Jacob who is a liar and a scoundrel and he can take manly hunter uh, Esau and he ends up picking the one that you wouldn't think. Um, and that's a strange thing in the providence of God. Um, but what we know from that passage is just like the wind, you don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know which direction it's coming from. You don't see it. All you see it is acting upon the world around it. Um, and the spirit does the same thing. We can't control the spirit. Again, we have responsibilities things that we're called to, but the spirit is working and doing his own will as well. So that's how we become converted, right? We say to people, you must believe and repent. And then behind the curtain of eternity, we also know that God has to be moving and active and the spirit has to be regenerating and changing people's hearts. Okay. Um, for those who are always nervous, because when we start talking about this stuff, you're always, people are always nervous. Yeah. But what if I want to, but the spirit isn't moving? What if I want is just, Oh, I want to be saved so bad. I want to believe I want to repent. And I feel like I do, 
but the Holy Spirit just doesn't, he's not on board with that. And I would say it's probably never the case. Okay. Cause the reason you want to believe and repent is because the spirit's working in you already. We assume that those things that are happening in our minds and hearts are us and the spirits out there just not catching up or whatever, but it's totally the other way around. It's the spirit that was the one that made us think those things in the first place. He is the one stirring us. And so, um, you're, you're the one lagging behind probably. Um, it is the spirit who has been active and working and, and, and wooing you, um, for a long time. Yeah. Tim. Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. What if Pharaoh was individually willing, but God hardened his heart? Yeah, right. How does that work? Yeah, so so what you see in at least that story is you don't see a situation where Pharaoh is going, I repent and want to turn to the Lord and follow him faithfully for the rest of my life. He is under duress and basically in a situation where he is either forced to uh, uh, recant or God in some cases says, no, I'm not, you're not going to recant right now. This, we're going to double down on this and it's going to get worse because I'm using this for my own ends or whatever. And so I would say at one level, I mean, these are, these are sort of very in your face kind of things to say. I would say certainly God has the right to do with his creation, whatever he wants to do with his creation. In fact, those are the literal illustration that's given in Romans uh, 9 and 10. And so if God wants to take a Pharaoh and say, I'm not going to grant you repentance. In fact, I'm going to harden your heart against these things, and it is going to bring greater levels of condemnation on you, but I'm doing it for a purpose to make my grace more highlighted over here and my judgment more highlighted over here, then that is within God's will to do that. And so, again, there's there's a piece of it where I think we would say most people would say, well, that just doesn't seem uh, it doesn't seem fair. Um, but part of the deal is is that we are already are you have to look at it from the other side in that we are all already condemned. We're already in prison. We are all on death row. As lost individuals, we're on death row waiting execution. That's the deal. Um, you've been that way your entire life. You've been on death row forever uh, because you're a sinner under God's condemnation. And so, and, and you lean into that and you choose it on your own and it, and it is the life you've chosen. Um, grace is the weird thing, right? Mercy is the weird thing. And so if God shows mercy, we should say, man, what is it incredible that God would show mercy? And when he doesn't show mercy, and brings judgment, we should say, well, of course he would. That's exactly what you would expect in this situation because you had rebellious sinners and God is a just God. So um, it's not surprising or unjust that Pharaoh got what Pharaoh got. Um, what is incredible is that Israel got freed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's incredible is that they were taken out of slavery and given a promised land. Mm-hmm. That's what's crazy. Not that Pharaoh was heart was hardened and judgment came upon. That's from a very di- different perspective, right? Though mo- that's not the way most of the world sees it. Certainly not the way the secular humanistic world would look at things, and it's not even the way that much of the church would look at things. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's the biblical way of looking at things. Um, can we know for sure? I just want to point out that 
that nobody made any comment about my heading. Can I get some change? Nobody, not anybody, not anybody even. Uh, yeah, that's, yes. Anyway, um, can we know for sure? Right. So how do we know for sure about these things? Cause that's obviously what people are concerned about. Um, how can I know that I'm actually converted? Um, that's what people worry about. So, well, so for on one, there's, we would say there's definitely a difference between presumption and assurance of salvation. Okay. You can be presumptive about salvation in a, um, in an unbiblical way, in a godless way. I think last week I shared that quote from Voltaire about where Voltaire basically said, he talked, somebody said, you know, aren't you scared that to live in godlessness and do these evil things and sinful things? Aren't you scared of God's judgment? And he said, God will forgive. That's his job. Um, and you're like, you better hope so. Um, because th- there's a presumption there, right? Eh, you know, God's a good and loving God. Certainly he couldn't, if God is really as big and awesome as he is, he certainly couldn't care about who I'm sleeping with, right? He couldn't care about what I do on Sunday mornings, right? There's no way that a big God that big could care, right? And the answer is, no, he does, right? Um, he, he cares very much. And so we should never be presumptive about our salvation, right? But God does want us to have assurance of our salvation. He doesn't want us walking around all the time living terrified that we are on the outs with him. And so how do we do that? How do we have that kind of assurance of conversion? Um, personally, um, is, is on one level, but maybe also at another level, how do we, how do we see these things in people's lives? Okay. So the first thing and the most important thing would be this. And this is something that's important in all of our lives too. Um, I have a dear friend who is constantly daily, um, struggling with, ideas of doubt, wondering if God has really saved him, wondering if he's a part of the elect, wondering if he's actually converted. Um, all it takes is just a little bit of a bad day to derail him. And he is, and he is, he's in the dumps, right? Because he's like, I just don't even know if I'm a believer. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I don't know, even know any of these things. Okay. And the thing that I go back to with him every time, the first thing is not so much the evidence of salvation, but the grounds of salvation. Okay. And the grounds of salvation are the, the, the heavier weight. Okay. They're the thing that are, that is more assured. Right. And so we go back and we talk about things like the ideas of God's grace and his election of Christ and his cross of the offer of faith and repentance that God has said, if you will believe and repent, you will be saved. Okay. Those are biblical foundations and descriptions of salvation. Okay. So, so when I am doubtful of my own salvation, there's a piece of it where I go, okay, have I done what the Bible says to do? And are the, is the basis of my salvation found in the scriptures solid? Okay. Um, again, giving an example. So my friend will say something like, well, you know, I'm struggling with lust today or something like that. Right. And you're like, cool. Did Jesus die for your lust? Did Jesus know you're going to lust before you lusted? Right? Did Jesus, um, when Jesus went to the cross, was he like dying for man's sins? Everything except for Bob's lust 3,000, 2,000 years from now, except for that. Everything else I got covered, but not that one. And the answer is, of course not. 
your sin is just one of a myriad of sins that Jesus has died and paid for. Um, his cross is sufficient for all of those things. Um, it is efficient for all of those things, right? Um, so we, we keep on going back to the, the grounds of our salvation. Okay. So, so then I, and then I'll say things. Hey, have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Yeah, I've done that. Have you repented of your sin? Yeah, I'm literally doing that now. That's why I feel bad about the things that I've, you know, done. Right. Okay. That's the basis of salvation. Okay. Trust that Jesus is not lying to you when he says, believe and repent and you will be saved. Stop treating Jesus' words as if he, he was messing with you. That what he really meant was if you live a perfect, if you believe and repent and then live a perfect life, then you will be saved. Cause that's not what he said. He said, believe and repent. You've believed and repent. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And then going further back, we believe that God has chosen you. Uh, you wouldn't have believed and repented and you wouldn't follow him if he hadn't chosen you in eternity past. And man, nothing you have done is big enough to get God to change his mind because God doesn't change his mind. You must be. Right. Because note that you wouldn't have done that if you hadn't been. Yeah, it's the spirit that made you believe and repent. Right. It is the spirit that granted those things to you because they are graces. Um, and if you hadn't. Been elect, if you hadn't been part of that process of God chose you, God called you, God justified you, he will glorify you. If you hadn't been chosen and called, you would never have been justified. You wouldn't have made those decisions. You wouldn't have turned to Jesus and said, I believe and repent um, in these things. Now, again, there's always this danger because we can't see inside people's hearts, right? And so there are people who make, um, that, that don't really believe. They don't really repent, right? Um, and there's no way that there's always going to be a, a, a problem here. And there's, and because we can't, I, nobody can tell you your heart, right? Um, nobody can say that to you except God. And so, again, I think that you know, we'll talk about this again in a second. Part of the evidence of this, this assurance that comes, is because God reveals it to our hearts and confirms these things in our hearts. Okay, um, and that is that true that that secondary eleven uh, assurance um, rests not on the grounds but on the evidence of salvation in our heart and lives. Okay, because again, we do believe that change will occur. Now, again, if you're a new believer, change doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes there is significant change in the short run, but change happens over um, significant periods of time. Again, what I would look to is saying, are you believing and repenting? So if you came to me and you were like, I'm a new believer and I keep on messing up in the same old ways that I've been messing up, I would say, yeah, that's because you're not good at this yet, um, right? And the spirit is maturing you and growing you and, and working in you. And you are going to find greater and greater levels of victory over sin as you go throughout your life. And God is going to be progressing you in those things. Um, but no, I wouldn't expect uh, a new believer to be any better at following Jesus than I would a new baseball player to be very good at hitting a baseball. Um, you, yeah, you, you're, yeah, you're nurtured, you're fed, you're, you're, there is a growth process in, in, um, the spirit. I, just as an example of that, my friend, um, one of the big things that circles around that stuff is he's always like, 
yeah, man, if I'm a Christian, I just don't know why I'm struggling with all these things. Like if I was a Christian, really was a Christian, I should just be good to go. I should have gotten saved and then everything should have been fine spiritually for me. And, and I, and another thing I always encourage men is I'm like, then why does the Bible tell us over and over again to pursue and repent and believe and trust? Why does it talk to us like we haven't done these things and we need to keep on striving in them? If the answer is as soon as you believe and repent, you're good to go and you're perfect forever. The Bible should be like very heavy on evangelism. And then after that, just be like, and coast it out, bro. You know, that should be what the Bible says, but it doesn't. Pretty much half of every book in the Bible is this is what Jesus has done. And the second half of every book in the Bible is now this is what you need to do, right? Now, again, not to earn or win or accomplish your salvation, but because of the salvation that has been earned, won and accomplished on your behalf. Now you need to live it out in these ways. And that's going to be difficult. You're going to have to struggle through things. You're going to have to work. You're going to fall. You're going to mess up. You're going to have victories. You're going to grow. You're going to help other people to grow. You're going to have setbacks. You're going to have all these things. Um, that's why I'm going to encourage you in all these things. Keep on, keep believing, keep repenting, keep growing. Okay. That, that, that's the evidence. Okay. That is the thing that we see at work in our lives that leads us to believe that the conversion that we think happened really has happened. Okay. And so, uh, to, to use some phrases that he uses from, um, the BD uses in his book, uh, being a healthy church member he talks about the idea of knowing your own soul. Okay. And so he says, what does it look like? What we have to do is we have to know what's happened in our own hearts. We have to really believe these things and really trust in them. And so he says, one of those things is asking ourselves, oh, and all these things come from the book of first John. If you've never noticed this, the book of first John is a great book about the assurance of salvation and conversion. So it's basically a book that over and over again, throughout every chapter, adds some little piece where it's like people who are in the faith do this and look like this. And people who are not in the faith don't do that. Okay. And so there's tons of, you just go through it, read first John, uh, not the gospel of John, but the epistle of John, right? Um, now you got to read all of it and you got to read every line because if you don't, you'll get, it'll, it'll sidetrack you. You'll read some place where it's like, you know, those who, I don't even, I can't think of any of the lines right off the, my, the top of my head, but something like, oh, well, if you persist in sin, then you obviously are not a believer. And you're like, wait a minute. But then like two lines before it, it says anyone who says they have no sin is, is a liar. Right. And so you go, yeah, because we're talking about both these things. We're talking about, we all have sin and we, we need to admit that sin and then repent of it and seek to live otherwise. But, but let's read a couple of these things because all of these points come from uh, the epistle, first epistle to John. So he says in chapter one, this message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, so what do you do? So the answer is, do you walk in darkness, right? Do you? And by walking, I think that is pointing towards an idea of persistent standard of living. Do you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and by that I mean I deal drugs to babies. 
Um, right. If you, if you, I was just trying to think of something that nobody in here did, but what everybody would recognize is bad. Okay. Um, we don't have any baby drug dealers, right? Okay. So the reality is, is if you walk in patterns of darkness and have no problem with it, and yet say you're a believer, something's wrong. It's not, that's not the way it works. Okay. Um, if you, but at the same time, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, right? So if you're like, nah, I don't do any of that baby drug dealing anymore. I'm straight arrow, clear sailing now. Uh, don't do anything bad anymore. The answer is no, that's wrong too. You're not that good, right? We all have sin. Um, but what do we need to do about that sin? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, right? So those are all patterns of what it means to be a believer. Um, if you're a believer, you will still have sin in your life, but you can't walk in it. You can't just say, no big deal. I can do whatever I want to. You need to be honest about your sin, acknowledge it, repent, um, and, and turn to God, right? That's what we do. Um, he goes on to say, um, actually, this is in chapter three. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what, what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. So again, the idea of saying, you know what believers do? They attempt to follow God. They obey his commands. Perfectly, Ash, we never do anything wrong. No, we just read in chapter one, we all have sins. We need to confess those sins, okay? These are both realities at the same time. Um, so we live in that reality, walking in light, confessing the ways that we mess up, right? But if we walk in darkness, then something's wrong, all right? Um, do we love the Father? Um, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay? So, again, when we bring all these phrases together, it can get confusing. But if you take them as individual things, then it's a lot more clear. You go, you know what? If someone says they're a believer in God, but they do not confess Jesus Christ as his Son, they're not. Talking about Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons, Right? Uh, if you say you're a follower of God, but you say Jesus is not the son of God, then you're not. That's an evidence of salvation. It's an evidence of right belief. There's no way to get around it. If you say Jesus is not the son of God, then you are not a believer. Well, I got a Muslim friend, Ash, and he's super faithful. He says he believes in the same God we do. What does he say about Jesus? He says he's just a random prophet. Then he is not a believer in the one true God. Um, what about my Jewish friend who believes in the Old Testament? And he says he believes in the Ten Commandments and all the miracles of the Old Testament. And he believes in the one true God, Yahweh, that's presented in the Old Testament. What does he believe about Jesus? Uh, he thinks he was a crazy prophet and a heretic. Then he doesn't believe in the one true God. He's wrong. He is. He believes in something, but it isn't the real God because the only people who believe in Jesus believe in the Father as well. And by the same token, you could go through each of those. If someone denies Jesus, that's the spirit of Antichrist, not the spirit of a follower of God. Um, you have to know the Father and you have to know the Son. That's what it means to to uh, be converted. 
If you don't do those things, then something's wrong. Um, you have to love other Christians. We're going to talk about that tonight. We know that we have passed out of death into life, which is what conversion is, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? So that's a challenge to us. that We need to live in such a way where we are loving of our brothers and sisters, particularly in Christ, but probably in, in general of the world too. Um, but again, if you don't like, if you don't love the brotherhood, then you, something's wrong. Again, something's off there. Um, maybe that's a sin that you need to repent of and say, yeah, I've not loved the brotherhood rightly and I need to repent of that. Um, but that's not what it looks like to, to follow God. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay. Do we have the testimony of the spirit that we are children of God? Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his of given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides him, abides in him and he in God. So again, we have these pictures where we say the Holy Spirit is in us. We have the spirit. He testifies to us that we are um, children of God. Um, it is because of the spirit working in us that we can confess Jesus is the son of God. So again, nobody who is a believer in God, everybody who's a believer in God confesses Jesus as as Savior and Son of God. If you have a problem with Jesus being Savior and Son of God, then you aren't a believer, right? Uh, that's the deal. Um, so do we have the testimony of the Spirit that we are children of God? And are we persevering in the faith? This is kind of that last idea where, man, the biggest evidence that you are a follower of Jesus is that you keep on being a follower of Jesus. Uh, if you are living for Jesus, if you're repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ, if you are growing in him and you continue to do that until you are dead, then you're probably a believer. Um, again, from the all outward signs, you would be one, right? I can't see your heart. Only you and God can deal with that. But from everything else on the outside, I would go, that man or woman persevered to the end. Um, they continued to trust in Christ and repent of sin and grow in him until they died. So everything that I know, um, I would say that they are a follower of Jesus. Kind of close with this illustration, right? We all know what that thing is, um, right? So your, your check engine light comes on in your car. Um, I think all of these things that are listed in the book of in, in First John are basically sort of like warning lights on your on your car. Okay, so if if you're driving along and a warning light comes on, that doesn't mean eject. This thing is going to explode into a fireball instantly, but it does mean, hey, you know what? Something's wrong. 
something's something's not right here. Okay. Um, you should you need to check on this. Okay. Um, if you find yourself going, gosh, man, I just don't want to be around church people. I'm tired of being, I don't like, I don't like going to church. I don't like talking to them. I don't like seeing them. I don't want to be around them. Uh, they bum me out. They annoy me. They're this, they're that or whatever. You know, the Bible does now, again, we're going to talk about it tonight again, because this is, that's one of the main points is why I'm harping on it because it's in, we all have different personalities. We have introverts and extroverts and those are things or whatever, but here's the reality. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you're going to love the brotherhood. Now, you may love them in ways that do not include being personally present in all kinds of time, right? Because you may still say, I'm emotionally uh, worn down by these things. There's ways that I can love the brotherhood that don't involve me having to be as connected as other people might be in certain ways or whatever. But if you were a person who goes, no, I don't need any of this stuff and I don't like it and I'm not going to be a part of it, but I still believe in Jesus, then the Bible would say something's wrong. There's a warning light coming on going, I'm not sure what's going on. And it would probably in your own working things out with God and pastorally, it would take a little longer to suss that out and figure out what's going on, but something's wrong right? Maybe it's a sin that you need to repent of, or maybe it's a larger evidence. If it continued to persist and you were unwilling to repent of it, it might be evidence that maybe you weren't really a believer, right? Now that's the, that's the thing is a lot of people worry about. It's not the presence of these things. It's your attitudes towards them. That's why faith and repentance are the two keys to our Christian life, to conversion and to living it out. If you're in your life all the time and you're like, oh, every time I see a little bit of sin in my life, I assume that I must not be a believer because the Bible just said, if, if I really love the brotherhood, uh, then, I mean, if I'd love, if I'm a Christian, I'd really love the brotherhood. And man, I was worn out today and I just didn't want to see people. I was, so I must not really be a believer. No, that just means you need to respond to that in the right way. Is it true that we all have sin? Yes. So repent of that sin. Go to God and say, God, I, I know I should be more caring and more sympathetic and more servant hearted, but I'm just in a selfish mood today. And I apologize for that. I confess that is sin and I repent of it. And, and hopefully if there's still an opportunity to act on repenting, then you do at the very least the next week, you do your best to act on it then. Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> which has never happened, never happened, right? I have never started down an aisle and turned to go down a different aisle because that person was at the end of the aisle. Never done that. Um, yeah. Um, but even then, you know, I mean, we're, we're hard on ourselves, right? About little things like that, but you might say, no, there were, the, the truth is, is it's not that I don't want to talk to that person. It's that I don't have time. And there's no way to walk up to somebody kindly and say, I don't have time for you today. I have more important things. They're more legitimate at my home that I have to deal with. You know, so we, we avoid co- things like that. But all that to say this is if you keep on going, I have no interest in being with the brotherhood. I don't care what's going on there and I don't want to be a part of it. If that persists over time and you were unrepented of it, then the Bible would say, there's a check engine light because something's broken. And what's probably broken is that you're not really a believer. Okay. Um, but here's the deal. I would also say if the repentance is there, even if you haven't gotten it fixed yet, the repentance is probably evidence of your salvation, right? The very fact that you are know it's wrong that you feel that way 
is evidence of the fact that the spirit is working in you because lost people don't care about this stuff. Okay. Lost people aren't worried about what other people think at a, I mean, I, everybody's worried about what other people think, but they're not, not in the same way that a Christian is that a, a, those people are, the spirit is not working in them the same way unless it's, he is working in them to bring them to salvation. Right. Um, but that, that evidence that you are seeking after repentance, that you know something is wrong, that you are trying to deal with it between you and God, even if your heart is not in the place that it should be yet, is evidence that you are, are the spirit is working in you and conforming you to the image of Christ. So, which is a long, arduous process, um, that you will be working at the rest of your life and you will never wake up and go, got it. It's all good, man. I'm firing on all cylinders and every, there are no warning lights. There's probably always warning lights on. Let me put it that way. You've always got something. If you're, if it's, if it's like my car, it's got 300,000 miles on it. There's always a light on. Okay. Um, there's always something that, that the God, that God is working on you in some way, right? And he's saying, Hey man, you need to check this. You've not been very, um, you've been getting, a little too easy with your sin lately. You're not thinking about it. You let things slip and you don't seem to be uh, concerned about them. That's a problem. You need to, you need to check that. Um, don't let that persist because if you do, something's wrong. Um, that would be evidence of something that's a bigger deal. And so I think we find out that we work these things out in our lives. You know, I, I almost never, this is a weird thing to say. It's not exactly true, but if I'm in the word and in prayer and in community, I almost never need somebody to just come and set, make, give me a hard talking to because the spirit does it naturally through the, 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 the life of, of his word prayer in the church. You know what? If I'm being selfish, being a jerk to my wife, that happens a lot, right? If I'm being a jerk to my wife, if I'm in the word in prayer and in church, I won't be a jerk to her very long before the spirit goes, Hey dude, you need to do something about that. That's not okay. You can't keep on acting that way. Now, if I'm not in any of those things, I can probably get away with being a jerk to my wife for a long time. And maybe somebody even has to come along and say, dude, you've been really short with your wife lately. What's going on there? And then that kicks you into the whole process. Um, sometimes there's warning lights on and we're just not paying attention to them, right? But we're really, we're sort of moving into a conversation more about sanctification now than we are about conversion. But it's because sanctification, progressive sanctification is an evidence of conversion. And so that's why we, we make those connections. I know it's a whole lot and I know it brings up a billion questions. Um, and, and we don't have a ton of time to answer those questions. We got a little bit of a late start. Um, is there any questions, comments, concerns? <laughs> 